Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbit Weasel Podcast, Episode 8. This is our second episode of the Halloween October. We never did come up with a clever title for it, but our second Halloween special, I guess. We're doing one a week. Uh, This week's movie is our newest film by far, actually. 2019 came out one year ago. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But first, I'm Jared. I'm the host here, Super Horror Movie Nerd. I'm also with Mia. Hello, Mia. How are you? Hi, Jared. Doing pretty good. Good, good. And Justin? How are you, Justin? Doing pretty well, man. As always, happy to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, good, good. And today we're talking about scary stories to tell in the dark. So a little bit of background information. These, This movie was based on, I think a lot of people are familiar with these books. If you're around our age, maybe a little older, a little younger, you probably know these. So it was based on a trilogy of books for aimed at young readers, scary story books, of course. Each was a collection of short stories based around urban legends and folklore, a lot of classic stories. The books were written by a man named Alvin Schwartz, and they were very controversial, both for the subject matter was pretty intense, and particularly, I think, the illustrations by Stephen Gamel, which are really creepy even for an adult, I think. Some of those still freak me out. They're very intense, black and white, kind of surreal, horrific drawings. So they faced a lot of censorship pressure. Uh, Actually, last year, we had the movie that we're going to talk about, and there was actually a documentary about the books called just called Scary Stories. So I'd recommend everyone check that out if you want to know more about the history of the, the controversy with these books. But let's before we get into the movie, let's talk about the books. Did you two, I guess Mia, I'll go with you. Did you grow up with these books? Do you remember them from being a kid? I did grow up with them. I remember them. I had probably, I think maybe two out of the three. And I remember I would take them with me to sleepovers mm-hmm. and creep my cousins out. <laughs> <laughs> I great. love the books. They're great. They were a real fun. And I, I, ha- I can't remember how old I was, but it was pretty young. I had to be in like in middle school. Yeah. I was going to ask if you remembered how old you were when they came out. Because the first one, like I said earlier, came out in 81, which I was surprised to find out it was that old. But mm-hmm. the last one came out in 1991. So... Yeah, my entire childhood, they were out. Justin, what about you? Do you re- did you read these as a kid? Yeah, um, I remember uh, kind of thumbing through them. I don't know if I ever read any of them, like purchased and and read them. I can picture both the hardback and the paperback versions of them, um, and some of the drawings. Um, but I'm not sure that I ever read any of them systematically through. I know I read them when I was really young, like early elementary school, because I was, this is actually some of my first exposure to, I guess, horror was those books. And there were other books like that, you know, scary stories for kids. Like there was the short and shivery books. Of course, there was Goosebumps. I think a lot of people our age were reading those. Mm-hmm. So these were more, mm, I think Goosebumps was more advanced reading. Like these were very short stories, pretty simple, but they were a lot more intense and scary than Goosebumps was, that's for sure. Uh, people would get killed in these books, so they were very uh, controversial, and I loved them, I think. Huh? Like you said earlier, too, I mean, the illustrations stick with you, too. I mean, they're really creepy. Yeah, I think, I suspect those illustrations are what really made caught so many people's attention, because they are very freaky. The book cover illustrations are great. I mean, just looking by the art, I knew what book I had back in middle school. Mm-hmm. The one with like the skull, and it yeah. looks like a clown skull. Yeah, and that skull stays yeah, on me too. Yeah, it's, yeah. Pretty, it's great. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one. I have the hard cover um, where it's all three of them combined together, and I think that's the one you're talking about with the, the woman's skeleton's face on the front. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's... Uh, there's a lot of, uh, it's too bad we, we should have done a, we should do a video for this one one day and show, look at some of those pictures because man, they're intense. And actually a few years ago, they re-released the book, the whole trilogy with new artwork. And there was this huge uproar yeah, from people. So they re-released it again with the old artwork. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was done on purpose. Mm. I just bought the trilogy. I, yeah. I, I downloaded on Apple because it's like, 
uh, on my hand, you know. Yeah. And it's really great. And it did have the illustrations from the, when the first, when the books first came out. Yeah. The illustrations are half the fun. You got to have those. <laughs> I reread these books. I've read them several, several times since I was a kid. Um, but I reread them last year in preparation for this movie. So yeah, if you haven't read those books, uh, definitely go track them down no matter what age you are. I think they're, they're a fun read. Well, had either of you, uh, I guess we'll move into the movie then, those books. I mean, we both love them. I was, what did you think when you heard they were going to make uh, a movie based on these books? Do you remember hearing about it? Yeah. Were you so excited? I remember being in Taipei or Seoul and seeing a advertisement for it when me and I went to see um, a movie. I remember seeing the, um, the Herald character on the on the printout and thinking of you <laughs> and uh and it was like a little bit earlier i think i don't know if they were releasing it there earlier but it was sometime earlier in the summer maybe it was just the advertisement for it coming out earlier but i think we had talked about it coming out or, or something but i remember seeing it there and being excited to see it i saw so i follow a movie and tv show and all things like just nerdy um critic on youtube her name is Grace Ram, and she was talking about how the movie was going to come out. It was going to be produced by Guillermo del Toro, and so right is that is that right? Guillermo, I'm yep, pretty that's sure. right. Guillermo He's the producer. Del Toro. Like, really excited because you know I love Pants Labyrinth. Yeah, so I was I was really excited about this because I love those books. Um, the only problem is whenever something like this gets announced, you just think, ooh, they could really screw that up if they're not careful. <laughs> you know, anytime a big budget Hollywood gets a hold of some sort of property, it can go really well or really poorly. Like in the case of video game adaptations, it usually goes poorly. <laughs> but <laughs> no, uh, no uh, Super Mario. <laughs> yeah, the Mario movie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> most uh well that's a that's another tangent to get off on <laughs> i'll avoid that but uh yeah so getting into the movie like you said it was del toro is the producer and he seems like a cool guy he's always involved in nerdy stuff pacific realm he was was he the producer or director on that one too i know he's always involved with cool stuff the movie was directed by a man and in case he's listening forgive me for butchering your last name andre overdahl I don't know if I said that right, but uh, he also, I think before this, he made The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which I haven't seen, but it's gotten a little bit of a following. And Justin, you'll appreciate this. He's the same guy who did Troll Hunter. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, man. Troll Hunter. That's a good movie. If anybody here hasn't seen that one, go see Troll Hunter. We do an episode on it. It is yeah. awesome. Yeah, Jared and I watched it when he came and uh, visited in Taipei. It's incredible. Yeah, you have to see it. Is it an old movie? No. No, it's just last 10 years. And it's a movie about um, trolls, actual real trolls. They're, you know, giant creatures that are, that really exist. It's a found footage movie. It sounds like it should be terrible, but it's actually really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting it to be terrible. I mean, I was yeah. like, you know, okay, great. Like, because sometimes we enjoy terrible movies together. So I'm like expecting it to be terrible because he's describing it to me. And I'm like, <laughs> can't do something real with trolls. It's really good. Yeah, it's a. So, anyways, this director he has a few good movies under his belt now. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in the future. So we've got some good names behind this movie. And well, before I say my part, I'll let you give your first impressions of the movie. Both of you, Justin, I know you had seen it before. Oh yeah, you had both seen this one before, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you think? I guess Mia, we'll start with you. What did you think the first time you saw the movie? And has your opinion changed at all this time watching it? So the first time I saw the movie, I didn't actually go back and read some of the stories. So, cause they do like, you know, to make the story flow with the movie, they changed some of the aspects of the stories, but I thought they did a really good job. Like I, you know, I love Guillermo del Toro, but I was like, you know what? There could be a chance that there are gonna be like, really like cheesy stories cause yeah, that could be a probability. But I saw the movie and I thought they did a really good job with the jump scares and the CGI and really telling the story. 
um, I like that it's the, I think it's, what is it, back in the, was it 60s? Seven or early seventies, I think. I think the movie's set in nineteen sixty-eight. Nineteen sixty-eight. Yeah. Ah, well, sixties, but mm. but I think they did a really great job. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I was like anything that reminds me of like my childhood and my <laughs> days of reading scary stories that's on the dark is pretty great. Oh, I, I agree. I'm, I I really liked it. I liked it the first time. I remember. Uh, Jared was really excited about it. So, but yeah, I, I remember really liking it the first time and thinking it like, I was expecting it to be more like a kid's movie for some reason, because um, I was associating with childhood, I guess. And uh, I thought it was like legit creepy, but also caught the like childhood kind of vibe like Stranger Things does. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but it catches like a childhood story also well. The children actors are great. Yeah, there's also like terror and some good jumpy moments, and it's it's really it's really frightening. So uh, I liked it, and the, this time watching it again, I you know you catch more things. Me and I were catching some foreshadowing and um, some you know more details of it, uh, but I I really liked it the the third time through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I really liked this movie. I liked it the first time I saw. I did. I did see this one in theaters. Uh, it was quite an experience seeing it in theaters. Uh, I still like it. I liked it again. This is, like you said, it, it. you expect it to be a kid's movie. And if it is, I wouldn't really call it a kid's movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of like an old school 80s kid's movie where it's uh, kind of for that weird teenage kind of a kid's movie but kind of also for adults you know it's pretty intense if it's a kid's movie you know I remember at the time when this came out thinking wow I hope no one's taking their little kids to see this thinking it's going to be like a good fun time because there's some really scary stuff in this movie uh it has a lot of a lot of really good suspense that's done very well and a few a few good jump scares you know three or four in there that really gets you. It just pushes the line of almost having too much, but not quite having too much. Whereas a lot of horror movies for the last several years have been almost all jump scares. So it's a nice change of pace to have one that doesn't completely rely on that. But when it does do them, it does them well. So we have to have a uh, block out a day and watch uh, season one of stranger things together. The three of us will have to use like some browser extension because um, you just described exactly how I describe Stranger Things. <laughs> and uh, I think they capture it uh, really nice throughout a whole series. And I really like the format that's also, it plays out here too, just as you described. So anyways, sometime we should we should stream it together because I think you would love it. Yeah, I'm one of the few people, few horror fans for sure, who hasn't watched Stranger Things yet. I know I need to, but there's just so much coming out and especially the last several years, there's been so many horror TV shows coming out that I need to watch. And a TV show is a much bigger time investment than a a movie. So there's been a lot of uh, horror shows I need to get to at some point, but yeah. So my thoughts on this movie, um, I did, I do like it. I have some issues with it, but I'll get to those as we go along, but let's see here. Yeah, I can get, uh, there's a few things that I'll, I'll get into, but I was nervous when it first came out because the general setup of the movie is a lot of people were upset. They thought this should be an anthology, which I still think, yeah, maybe it should have been an anthology. Um, the only problem with anthologies is I'm not sure if one would do well in, in theaters right now. I don't, you just haven't had an anthology come out in theaters in many, many years. So when I realized they were going to kind of make it a new story that incorporated the stories from the book in, a lot of people were nervous about that. But I thought it did pretty well. There is an, uh, a, new, a new story they wrote that kind of ties everything together. And the problem is they kind of went the Goosebumps route. Did anybody see – did either of you see the Goosebumps movie that came out several years ago with Jack Black? Um, I didn't see it either, but I know basically the way it works is they find a book that somehow unleashes all the monsters into the real world, which is sort of what happens in this this movie, right? They find a book that brings all those stories to life. So a lot of people complain that it copied the Goosebumps movie. But let's get right into the um, the plot then, I think. So the movie takes place on Halloween 1968. 
which was kind of an odd choice. I'm not sure why they decided to set the movie in the late 60s. I like that time period. I've, I've always been fascinated by the music and the culture of the late 60s with the, the counterculture, the hippies and everything that was going on. It's a very interesting time period, but I'm not really sure why they set that movie then, why they set this movie at that time. There's a lot of weird stuff like, um, what's that, Justin? Yeah, but it definitely could have been set in like the early 80s and had the same kind of effect, I think. Like yeah, it could have been any time, really. I mean, I understand not setting the movie in the present because, one, you always have to deal with cell phones. Everything's less scary when you have cell phones, right? So before cell phones, I would have thought maybe the 80s or the 90s when the books were coming out would have made sense and when most of the fans were growing up, but... They said it in 1968, and there's a lot of stuff about, like, the Nixon administration, uh, the election, and Vietnam, and it all just kind of feels out of place a little bit. Was that just me, or did that seem kind of out of place for you guys, too, the the time period and all the 60s stuff? So, for me, it wasn't – it didn't bother me really too much. I enjoyed that it wasn't, like, a, a, you know, present day because, you know, they have the – drive-in movie theater which worked to you know the film's mm-hmm. advantage and then they had you know uh what is it vietnam war and the nixon uh, presidency and then i know one of the storylines has to do with electroshock shock therapy mm-hmm. and so i thought it played well in my opinion yeah it played well yeah. in the 60s well, i didn't mind the time period i um and i'm always happy for you know, historical and political events to be worked into the timeline of the film, but it didn't play a further role, I don't think. I mean, it kind of, it zooms in on it at the beginning to kind of make the setting and time, and I guess to highlight the uncertainty of the time period and where people's thinking was at that that time in, in Vietnam was, of course, on everyone's mind in drafts, I guess, but it didn't didn't need to play as, as large of a role in the in the story that it did but yeah i was fine with it yeah it's just kind of funny when you're watching the movie periodically they'll be like hey it's the 60s <laughs> when we're talking about nixon it just felt kind of tacked on to me but yeah, that's it's all right paul coast who's walking us through everything too it's kind of a nice uh <laughs> touch yeah but the main uh, character of the movie, I guess, there's a, a few kids, but the main one, I think, is Stella. She's kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, kind of a nerdy girl. She's an author. She loves horror movies. Her room is super cool, by the way. Uh, I think in 1968, she wouldn't have been able to get a hold of all that really cool stuff, but <laughs> it's still a nice design. She's got all these like lobby cards in her room of old movies. So her name is Stella, and her father is played by Dean Norris, who most people will remember as Agent Schrader from Breaking Bad, uh, who is a great actor. And I think he's underutilized in this movie. You know, so far I've been complaining mostly, but uh, <laughs> she, he is such a great actor. When I heard he was in it, I was really excited. But he's only kind of in it for a few moments at the end or in the beginning, and then he shows up some more at the end. So kind of sad. We needed more of Agent, Agent Schrader in this movie, I think. But uh, so Stella goes out trick or treating with her two friends, Chuck and Augie. And they're all, you know, I think they're all seniors in high school or yeah, their last year in high school. They're planning to get revenge on Tommy, the local jock bully and his gang by egging their car and throwing in a bag of burning crap, (laughs) you know, yeah, burning poop which is two old Halloween trick-or-treat kind of mischief night traditions, you know, egging someone's house or setting a bag of burning crap on their front door. But so they do that and they get chased by him and the gang to a drive-in where they meet Ramon, who is um, a man who, or a young guy who lives in his car and they hide in there and they do manage to get away from the bullies, but they tell them, you know, this isn't over. And, can we talk about the bully character of Tommy? He is, he's pretty intimidating. I thought he was, the actor did a good job with Tommy because he comes across like a legitimate psychopath. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. A legitimate psychopath. yeah, I mean, he's almost a caricature of a psychopath uh, in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, like really early on, it kind of, it starts painting him in that light when he first kind of shows up on the screen. So, yeah. 
a lot of these old movies or movies that are based in that time period from the 50s to the 60s, they have this sort of stock bully character, and he's definitely one of them. A lot of Stephen King's movies, or a lot of his books, I should say, and the movies that are adapted from his books have that sort of bully character who's just like this guy. So The font's just kind of gone bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, so they decide to go to the... Um, 50s bullies character. It was an appropriate reference. <laughs> That's the second time. We, we brought up Fonzie last week, too. Yeah. yeah. Did we really? I guess so. Yeah, the... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The guy from the beginning of Night of the Demons who's trying to pick up the sister. I said he was like a sleazy Fonzie. There you go. Yeah. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Stella really reminds me of the character from Trick or Treats. I was telling Mia, um, Trick or Treat. Uh, oh, yeah, Rhonda. Which, yeah. Rhonda. Rhonda. Yeah, she's sort of like Rhonda, except maybe older, you know. Mm-hmm. She's, she's slightly, not quite as nerdy as Rhonda, but, uh, yeah, she's an aspiring author, writes scary stories, so. When she dresses up for Halloween, she also does the witch and kind of the witch hat and the big glasses. and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after sur- surviving the uh, the run-in, they decide to go to the old abandoned Bellows house. Uh, the Bellows were a very rich family. I think it's in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first families in the town who owned uh, a paper mill, so they were very wealthy. We hear the story of Sarah, who becomes sort of the main antagonist of the movie. She was the Bellows' daughter, who was kept locked in the house, wasn't allowed to leave. There were rumors that there was something wrong with her. Apparently children would come from the neighborhood to try and see her and she would tell them scary stories through the wall. Uh, Eventually several of the children were poisoned and died. So everyone believed it was Sarah and she hung herself before she could be punished. So now there's this old urban legend that if you, if you come to the house at night and ask Sarah to tell you a story, it will be the last story you ever hear. So there's another urban legend. The theme here is urban legends. That's what the book is all about. They explore the house. They go in and look around. It's a good set, you know, kind of like this one's kind of opening up the same way Night of the Demons did where, you know, young people go to a spooky house. So Chuck opens up a door while he's exploring and he sees a room. The, the house looks like a typical rundown haunted house, but he opens up a door and sees a bright red well-lit room with a creepy old woman and a dog and he he gets scared close to the door, and when he opens it again, it's all gone. So Chuck, throughout the rest of the movie, is going to be having this sort of fear of a red room. And Stella, she goes and she finds Sarah's room with her book of scary stories in it. But as they start looking at it, the bully's alive and lock them in the house. <laughs> so Chuck's sister Ruth is on a date with Tommy because she has good taste in men, and she tries to get and she tries to get Tommy to let them out. So he locks her in the room too. He locks her in the house too and leaves. Shove. Yeah, he throws her in. And then to make matters even worse, Stella does, in horror movies, there usually has to be somebody who does at least one stupid thing. And uh, Stella is the one who does it here. She asks Sarah to tell her a scary story, which starts the whole curse of the movie. And so from here on out, Sarah's stories are going to begin to come, come to life and the stories she tells are going to be the ones we remember from the book. All Stella's fault after all. So Ramon's car is destroyed by Tommy, so Stella lets him sleep in her basement. And then we get to the very first story from the book. This one is about Harold the Scarecrow. Did you guys remember this one reading it as a, as a kid? Mia, did you remember Harold? No, I don't. I didn't remember Harold, um, but I did reread it. And How was it? Uh, it was pretty creepy. So I could here. Let me give you a quick overview of a Harold story. So there are two farmers, and they have a little hut out on a mountain, and they take their cows, and and so they build a, a kind of like a doll scarecrow named Harold after one of the farmers, which they both dislike. And sometimes they take their anger out on Harold. They force food on Harold, and then one day Harold grunts. And they realize that, you know, Harold's grunting and that freaks them out. But they're like, you know what? He's just a doll, whatever. They continue on their merry way. Then suddenly he starts moving and they're like, okay, you know, 
you just leave them alone it's creepy and they do their own thing and they decide that you know they're just gonna leave harold because he walks out of the hut and leaves and it's really creepy because he's a doll and he's alive yeah. <laughs> so they're leaving they realize that they forgot some stools that are very expensive and so stools will get you every yeah time. stools will get you and so one of them has to go back and get them i can't remember which one has to go back and, and the other one kind of looks back to see at the hut and he sees harold laying out a nice freshly like um skin rug oh, of God. the man but yeah that's pretty pretty creepy yeah. you know reading that i was like hmm. yeah. Yeah, so that also sums up how the stories were uh, pretty well. You know, you've got a um, you've got a scarecrow basically, or a dummy, whatever you want to think of it as, coming to life. So that's a creepy thought. It's abused by its creators. Uh, it comes to life and skins one of them alive. Yeah, pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. So this segment does a pretty good job of. Most of the stories, I mean, they had to change them a lot from what's in the book to make them fit to the characters in our story, but they get the essence of it pretty well. And here the essence is an abused uh, scarecrow coming to life and getting revenge, right? Yep. So in this one, we have Harold. He's the scarecrow that Tommy, he lives on Tommy's farm. Uh, Tommy hates him for some reason. And after doing all this mean stuff, Tommy comes home late on Halloween night drunk and his mother yells at him for not taking some eggs to his neighbor, so he has to take them through the cornfield. Of course, he runs into Harold, who comes to life and chases after him, eventually catching him, stabbing him with a pitchfork, and then Tommy starts I don't, basically turning into a scarecrow himself, like Sheral starts bursting out of his body, uh, and he becomes, he takes Harold's place. So what, what did you think of it, Mia? Did you like uh, this adaptation? I did. It's still, I think... I guess not as gruesome as the story because you know thinking about you know a doll with like a person's skin but i i liked it because and, and i'm not saying anyone deserves to die or anything but you know tommy got his comeuppance for being a jerk um but because you know harold didn't do anything to him but really <laughs> the uh design on harold was really creepy yeah um, kind of reminds me of, like a little Leatherface, you know, from mm -hmm. um, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. Um, but I like the story. It was very suspenseful. I was like, run, run, don't, mm -hmm. you know, attack him with the pitchfork, just run. It's a really nice, uh, it looks nice. You know, cornfields are always good for the season. They set you in the kind of fall mm -hmm. uh, Halloween mood. And so it takes place in a cornfield and, it's done in a way where at first you just see it just kind of moves a little bit and then he starts getting like turned around and you're not sure if he's getting lost and walking in circles or if Harold is moving and reappearing wherever he goes and then finally Harold gets off and he's really alive and chases him and yeah Harold's good and creepy like most of his midsection is missing so there's nothing there and what do you think about this one Justin? Yeah I, I think Harold's creepy. And I think they do, a, as we said, a good job of making Tommy a character that has it kind of coming, um, I suppose. And then when it actually plays out, it's, it's, it's scary. You, uh, you know, you feel kind of bad for him. But the, the, all the straw coming out of his mouth and him turning into Harold, I thought was, was kind of cool. Um, so I, I liked how, you know, after it turned around, after he was the one beating up on Harold, there he was. Uh, now replaced Harold. Yeah, it's a good opening. Um, our first real adaptation from the book. So I, I liked it. Yeah. So Tommy now has turned into Harold. So he is missing. Everyone in the town just thinks he's missing. The police blame Ramon because he's an outsider and there's like implied, well, it's not really implied, it's pretty open racism from the police officer. Yeah, even before this, they were kind of, the cop was kind of messing with Ramon, right? Like, hey, do you know where you are? What are you doing here? And so he basically says, hey, we know you had a disagreement with Tommy who has disappeared, so you should not leave town. Has that ever worked, especially back in those times? Don't leave town. Does anybody go, well, I guess I'll stay here until they arrest me. <laughs> no, I don't think it works. So 
Uh, Ramon's suspected by the police for somehow being involved with Tommy's disappearance, and Stella goes to return the book to Sarah's room, but it shows back up in her room later. Of course, the book you can't get away with. And next up is The Big Toe. The Big Toe. This may be the scariest part of the movie to me, even though it's so silly. Well, Mia, do you remember this story from the books, first of all? Um, yes. Yeah. And it was gross. <laughs> yeah, it was gross. It's about a, a woman, or I should have, wish I had a chance to reread the books, but basically she finds, like, a, she thinks it's a mushroom or something, and she pulls it out of the ground, and hears something grunt, but it's actually a, a corpse's toe, and they cook it in her soup, and then that night, the corpse comes, you know, where's my toe? It's really silly. But uh, kind of creepy, you know. So here we have, this is Augie, who is, by the way, Augie dressed up as a, what did he dress up as for Halloween? A, not a clown. He kept saying, it's not a clown, it's a parade. Perot. Perot, Perot, yeah. French. Yeah. I think it's Perot. Wow. I think Perot. Perot. Not a clown. Not a clown. Yeah, it's one of those, yeah, we're, we're really not showing how cultured we are here. But anyways, there's some good characters set up that we're skipping over. The characters are actually kind of fun here. There's a lot of good humor, but uh, we're skipping over that to get to the main stories. So Augie is left home alone. His parents have left town. He begins to eat some stew he finds in the fridge, despite the fact that his parents say they did not cook it. He's like, well, somebody cooked it, so I'm going to eat it. But Stella and Ramon, they are watching this story actually be written in the book as it's happening in real time. So they're trying to warn him via walkie-talkie, nice touch, not to, uh, not to eat it. But he thinks they're just messing with them. So, of course, he starts eating the stew, and he doesn't see it. But we see there's an eyeball, and there's a, like, decaying toe in the soup. So it's a really good gross moment. Augie pulls the toe out of his mouth just to really put an exclamation point on how disgusting this all is. And then we start hearing it, you know, something walking around the house saying, who took my toe? Who took my toe is what they say here. And we actually see the corpse and the corpse is really creepy looking. I think it's the same corpse that's from the cover of the, the book, right? The skeleton thing. Um, Did I just make that up? No. I th it's not? No, I know you didn't make that up. Okay. Um, I think so. I think it is. Yeah, so they sort of fuse two things here. You have the big toe story, but the monster is actually that sort of the famous skeleton-looking thing from the one of the other stories that's on the cover of uh, one of the books. I can't remember which one. I think she's from the one where the woman gets lost in hide-and-seek and they find her corpse later. Oh, my gosh. I just read that one, too, right before the podcast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really great. The bride. Yes. The Bride, yeah, that's right. And her face is used on the cover of the collection that I had, where it's all three of them together. So she's really creepy looking. Anyway, so this thing is now wandering around his house looking for him, basically. And he hides under the bed, but the corpse appears behind him and kind of drags him into the darkness. So he disappears into nothingness, basically. This, to me, seeing this in theaters was pretty intense. It's a very scary, very suspenseful scene especially right there at the end because all the music goes away and it's completely quiet and you know there's a jump scare coming but you can't figure out exactly where it's going to be and I thought it was going to be when he comes out because he starts to come out from underneath the bed and he looks over the edge of the bed and I was thinking of Poltergeist with the clown so I'm like oh it's going to be up there but it's not and instead it's somehow appeared behind him underneath the bed and you get a close-up of its face and it drags him under yeah, I, to me, this was the scariest part of the whole movie, despite how silly the concept is. What did you guys think of uh, of this one? Yeah, so Augie's a really likable character, I thought. And so you feel kind of bad for him, how it plays out. And there's this, like, sense of impending doom. And you know it's coming because it's appearing in the book in real time. And then he also leaves behind, ugh, and it makes me cringe just thinking about but all the, the marks on the floor with his fingernails as he's dragged to presumably hell or wherever the monsters are taking him so yeah it's really creepy yeah i i enjoyed the story i i agree augie's really likable he's a fun character when he eats the tarot it always makes me gag Ugh, especially after he starts wanting to gag i can't see somebody else gag or listen to somebody else gag <laughs> right right <laughs> But yeah. I really enjoyed it because it really played up to like 
suspense. Mm -hmm. I love movies that do that, that play to the suspense and you're just, it's building, it's building, it's building and you know it's going to be there. And so, the, and they did the story really well. Yeah, that's the thing. Describing it, you can't capture it. The way this is shot in film, the suspense is really high, and it just drags on and on, and it is pretty intense. But just like that, Augie is gone, and he does not come back, by the way. So again, for supposedly a kid's movie, people actually die, and they're not okay at the end of the movie. <laughs> So the kids begin doing some research about Sarah to try and find out more about her. They learned that after she hung herself, the family disappeared. And each of her family members has a story in the book about how they disappeared. So they're learning more about the curse. But with that, let's move on to the red spot. This one is about Ruth, the sister, who throughout most of the movie, she's been trying to cover up a spider bite that she got in the Bellows house. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It turns into like a big pimple. She's preparing for a school play, but the bite keeps growing and growing. It's like a giant zit. So she goes to the bathroom to try and pop it, but out comes hundreds of spiders. This is more of the shock one. It's not so, I mean, there's some suspense because you see it like kind of pulsating and you see one of the legs stick out. Spiders are, I guess if I have a phobia, it's spiders. I don't really like spiders. So this, this scene always freaks me out whenever there's a spider scare. First off, do you guys remember this? Even if you don't, even if you didn't remember reading this in the books, I think this is one of those very common urban legends about somebody who gets spider lays eggs under their skin or something. They all burst out one day. Did you guys remember this one? I did not remember this one, and it was gross. And seeing that big old boil thing with the little leg coming out, that was mm -hmm. so gross. And, you know, we learned that she hates spiders. And I think to anybody that hates spiders or has a phobia that has got to be the worst kind of feeling that evil you know the amount of vulnerability that you don't know what it is and then when it comes out it's all coming out of your face and there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it Ugh. well i think this was this is one of those stories that appeals to preteens so well because that's the age where you're starting to get pimples and you know it's such a traumatic thing when you're so self-conscious so this is sort of like that times a hundred, you know, it's a gigantic pimple and there's spiders coming out of it. So it's a, it's a classic. A lot of these are um, classic urban legends that were in the books. So saw it for the first time, but I, I can remember nightmares of thinking of, I would have a zit that was actually a spider bite that then it was a bunch of baby spiders in it. And they like eat my face. Um, so I can remember being exposed to it either in scary stories in the dark or somewhere else and being mm -hmm. really creeped out by it the other thing i was going to say is this uh that um when they're doing all the research on their town and the bellows it reminded me of uh lovecraft it reminded me of uh shadow of Innsmouth with its like town like has its one big uh like industrial center and then the family kind of goes into decay and then the whole town suffers as a result it was sort of what they were uh, finding in their research. So it reminded me of some Lovecraft as well. This one, I mean, there's not too much more to say about it. It's just big pimple at birth, bunch of spiders. <laughs> you know, the only thing about this one was kind of weird is, I mean, it's explained by the end of the movie, but it's not clear what happens to her because at first you think, oh, she's going to be killed by the spiders. But they go in and rescue her and get rid of all the spiders, and she's she's covered in welts and spider bites. It's pretty horrific, but she's alive and screaming. And then the very next scene, he says, Chuck says, my sister's gone and we're next. So when I watched this, I'm not sure. Well, wait, did, did she die after that? What happened? Did, did that throw you guys off too? I mean, like I said, at the end of the movie, you know what happens, but I was confused by that. I'm like, so wait, so did she die or what happened there? Yeah, I didn't think that so my takeaway was that at the end of that scene her brother was holding her and she was like worried about the spiders she had several what looked like like whelps from i guess spider bites but my takeaway was that she was fine but that she had had like a really traumatic thing and maybe she would you know like have some kind of maybe it was in her head maybe some kind of scarring left over but that she was that she was okay and and you know, eventually you know we find out what happens to her but yeah I, I i took it as her brother was comforting her and she was going to be okay was was my takeaway when it ended i didn't catch it 
yeah catch that part that you said yeah i mean we find that well we'll talk about that when we get there but yeah just that that seems kind of confusing because you're like oh okay well i guess she'll she'll be all right in the next scene's like no she's she's gone which sounds like she's dead but so that that was just kind of a confusing scene but Moving on, they go to visit an old blind woman who was the daughter of Sarah's caretaker, so she knew Sarah as a child. I guess it's kind of a spooky scene, but it doesn't contribute too much. They, the only thing they really learned from this scene is that Sarah did not hang herself at home. She hung herself in a hospital. So they're like, oh, there's a hospital involved in this somehow. That leads them to go to the hospital to try and get a hold of, um, a hold of Sarah's records. So they learn that it's going to take six weeks to find, to get a hold of the records. So they sneak past the desk to go find them for themselves. Now, Chuck refuses to go any further because it's in, the records are in the records and evaluation department or the red room. And he's been having, you know, he had this vision of the red room at the beginning of the movie. He's been having nightmares about a red room. So he's like, I am not going to anything related to a red room, (laughs) which is kind of logical, I guess. Now we have kind of two things going on at the same time. We have Sarah and Ramon. They go and they find, we'll talk about that first. They go and they find her records and they learn that she had a deformity. She had some some type of albinism and something else that was wrong with her. So that's why they kept her locked up in the house. She was transferred to the mental institution by her brother who was a doctor there. And they find out why. They find uh, an audio, an old audio recording of her treatments where basically it's revealed that Sarah found out that the mill had a mercury leak and was poisoning all the children. That's what's killing them. And she was trying to tell everybody. So her family uh, locked them up and started doing, basically torturing her into believing that she was the one who killed the kids and so that she wouldn't reveal the family secret. Now, this is not the scariest part of the movie but this is probably the most intense part of the movie because you're like hearing her go through electroshock therapy you're not seeing it but you're hearing it it's very very traumatic scene in the movie what did i don't know what did you guys think about about this this part of the movie yeah when you were saying earlier about the what was the scariest to you i think this was the most kind of unsettling to me because uh, she's like pleading with her brother it's her brother torturing her it's electroshock therapy and uh and finally she like you know the other part of it, it she breaks as part of it you know right and then she takes on this different kind of persona so yeah and it's it's well done and um it was probably to me the most kind of unsettling or creepiest part of the movie yeah um i agree it was creepy and unsettling because during the movie, you know, when they started, you know, that she killed the children and leading up to like this evil person that she was a victim all in her to her family. And she was just trying to help people and the kids. And so she was being tortured for trying to speak up. It's really sad and creepy and I hate the sound of the electroshock therapy that they were doing. Yeah, it's 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 very intense because you have this sort of it's kind of like abusing a puppy. You know, you have this sort of very vulnerable character already. She's a child. She's different. She's locked up in her house and she's abused by her own family. And she goes through medical abuse by, you know, authority figure. It's a doctor. It's her own family. So they can basically do whatever they want to her. And you're not seeing it. You're just hearing it all. So yeah, it's very intense stuff there. And this is sort of most horror stories or a lot of horror stories, they have to have what I call a prior evil. You know, you have, if you have a, an evil force, there has to be something that caused them something bad that happened in the past. Um, You know, Friday the 13th part two, actually Jason was drowned as a kid because no one was paying attention to him. That's why he comes back and kills Candyman. He was killed for loving a white woman. So he, that's why he comes back. So there's always this sort of, Oh, poltergeist, you know, building a house over Indian burial ground without moving the graves. So there's always this prior evil. And here it is in this movie. It's a classic kind of a classic trope, but nuclear weapons and Godzilla. Oh, oh, that's another one. But uh, halfway through, yeah, through this torture, she, her voice changes, like her voice changes and her personality changes. And we realize that we're not, maybe we're still listening to a recording, but we're listening to her also in modern time. And she says she's going to tell a story about Chuck. So that brings us to the pale lady story. 
Oh boy, uh, another freaky monster. There's a lot of great monsters in this. So Chuck, he has now gotten lost in this hospital after uh, he's he's caught by some of the hospital employees, but he runs away from them, and they turn on the emergency sirens, which naturally causes the sirens to go off and causes red lights to flash. So now everything's the red room for Chuck. Um, so he sees a monster coming down the hallway, and it's like this. It looks kind of like a woman, but it's very deformed and very fat. Yeah, just a creepy, fat, pale woman walking slowly. Very close. I, I, someone I couldn't tell. Like when she's walking at first, there's like extra things around her leg that seem like extra clothing. But it's not clear to me if that's just ghostness. Do the, either of you have any insight into whether she's wearing clothing or not? I thought she no. was like a white gown. It looked to me, yeah, I thought she was nude, but looking at, you know, just on Google right now, looking at some of the pictures, it's not really clear. So one of the first times it like it zooms in on her is coming up from the ground, her legs. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see like legs underneath, but it's the way the stuff floating around it would suggest that it was like pants, I think, or uh, a gown or a dress. But then as it goes up, it doesn't, it no longer looks like she's wearing clothing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Even looking here on Google at some of the pictures, it's not completely clear. I mean, she, it's weird because she looks naked, but I think she is like wearing a tight fitting skirt or something. I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's just ghostly, you know, it's, it's not clear what's clothes and what's flesh. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's really creepy looking. And so she's walking down the hall towards him. And that's what makes this scene so intense is it's very slow. You know, it's, it's kind of like old school zombies where it's just slowly, slowly walking towards him. So he's like, okay, well I'll go another way. But each time he turns a corner, she's there down that hallway, a little closer, a little closer. So he keeps running around and going down different hallways. And each time she's closer and closer. And eventually, you know, she's everywhere uh, until he's trapped between like four versions of her coming towards him. And she eventually catches him and like absorbs him into her body. It was kind of a weird, kind of weird scene. And then that's it. Now he's gone. <laughs> so I love this scene too. Did you, uh, did you guys like this one? I think she's a great looking monster. Yeah. She's definitely a creepy, great looking monster. Another really great piece of building suspense, right? Cause what is more suspenseful than not being able to run away or go anywhere other and at every turn you make, there's that creepy monster coming for you. So I thought it was a really great scene. She doesn't like ink pens for some reason though. Well, the nudie ink pen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mia pointed out the nudie ink pen. I don't know if you saw yeah, this. But... It's that pen that, uh, he, that Chuck carries around that like you click on it and the, car- the little doll's wearing clothes and you click on it again and she's naked. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, yeah, she's really creepy. I sense of impending doom and not being able to escape is really, as to your point, is drawn out in a way that kind of inspires terror. So it's pretty frightening. And it looks really faithful to the, um, to the book too. She looks almost just like the drawing. So now we're just down to Stella and, uh, Ramon, the only two of the, the kids left. So, They, after this, they get caught by the hospital staff and they're taken to the police station by the officer who's been harassing Ramon throughout the movie. Uh, We learn he isn't just a racist jerk, he's a Nixon supporter. Uh, (laughs) So, again, hey guys, remember this movie's set in the 60s, Nixon, Vietnam. (laughs) Stella calls her dad. It's kind of a weird scene. She calls her dad, but she doesn't tell him where she is. Instead, she tells him that if she disappears, she she didn't leave him like her mom did. Uh, we learned that Ramon is a draft dodger, so that's why he's been living in his car. He's been hiding from the, the draft after his brother was killed in Vietnam. So, yeah, one of my little criticisms of the movie, we're getting some character development here and some story background, but I think it's a little bit, a little too late because we're starting in the last act of the movie. All this should really be established earlier in the movie, and it, it's almost like they kind of mentioned the characters at the beginning, and then here as we're going into the last act, they're like, "Oh, we need to talk more about them." Like, "Oh yeah, her, she has this thing with her family, and her mom left her, and he's a 
he has a thing with the, the war and the draft and I don't know, it all feels kind of like rushed at the last moment, but that's where an anthology approach to your point earlier might have been helpful because you can introduce that stuff in later if it's broken up in a clear anthology. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think maybe I would have to look into it, but I think maybe they had a pre-existing story and that's where the Sarah Bellows stuff came from. They decided to put it together with the scary stories aspect. And so that's where some of the things don't quite mix well. I, I don't know. Maybe they made it up specifically for it, but it almost seems like there was a pre-existing story and they tried to fit it all together. Anyway, so now we find out that Ramon is a draft dodger and he is he's afraid that he's a coward. That's his his sort of thing is he's afraid because he's running from the war. Does that make him a coward? So now both of them have to spend the night in the in the jail because the Officer finds out that Ramon's a draft dodger, so he's going to turn him over to the military. And Stella has to stay because she's refusing to cooperate with the cop. She wouldn't tell her dad where she was, and they won't tell him what he wants to hear. They try telling him the truth. Of course, he doesn't believe it. But with that, we move on to Mitai Doty Walker. <laughs> the sheriff, like I just said, he doesn't believe the kid, so he goes to look at the book while they're locked up. He sees the name of the story. Then the power goes out. <laughs> uh, his dog becomes spooked by something and goes over to the chimney and starts like growling slash barking. But it kind of transforms into this rhythmic growl bark that starts to sound like almost like talking. And when I saw this in theater, I got excited because I'm like, oh, I know where they're going here. I knew what it was going to be. But the dog gets spooked and runs away. And then a severed head falls down the chimney and says, Me Tai Doty Walker, which is from the books. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I still have no idea what that means, but it's in the, uh, it's an old story where the, the dog and the, the voice start kind of going back and forth. Did you remember that one, Mia? Uh, I didn't remember it, but you know, but I did read it uh, recently. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily do the whole uh, part where the dog. <laughs> <laughs> does it back and they do it back and forth um i thought that would have been really cool Ooh, that was really good. Then, yeah but uh i thought that was pretty cool yeah i can imagine if you you would be so confused if you watched this movie having no idea what the books were about like what the hell is going on here with the dog you know <laughs> people who really knew the book and i reread the book before i went and saw the movie are like oh yeah this is that part uh, but if you hadn't read that, you'd just be like, why is the dog? What's going on there? I thought the dog was going to start talking, like actually talking, which would have been creepy. But no, he just acts like he's going to, and then he runs away. So the head falls down the chimney, and suddenly the cop realizes that the kids were telling the truth. And what does he say? He says, you got to be shitting me or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So he pulls out his gun, and he starts shooting at the head. But all the other body parts start falling down the chimney as well. And then they reassemble themselves into the jangly man who is, I don't know, the jangly man is like something out of the Resident Evil video games. He's this twisted humanoid kind of creature whose joints rotate in all kinds of unnatural ways. So he's like, you know, all twisted up. It's He's really creepy too, you know. <laughs> It kills the cop and comes after them, but they grab the cop keys and break out. So what did you guys think about the jangly man? Yeah, I thought the jangly man was was really creepy. And, you know, he's he's calling out Ramon for, for his big fear, as you mentioned, which is his fear of being a coward. But yeah, just a kind of a humanoid. And the skin is, again, like uh, leathery, but also thin and bending all over the place and so yeah, it's a creepy character, and it's uh, as as it chases Stella also and kind of uh, attacking her. It's it gives you like a sense of that they, they're not going to be able to escape. So I think Jangling Man was pretty creepy. Yeah, I agree. Jangling Man was creepy because you couldn't escape him because he would shove himself through the bars of the jail, <laughs> contort himself to get yeah. through. That was really creepy. Um, I thought they did a really good job with, uh, that's got to be CGI. And so oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did a really good job. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the Crypt Keeper in the face, mm -hmm. but they did a really good job and I enjoyed the story. 
Yeah, so for a lot of it, he's walking like he's walking on all fours, but with his chest facing up and his limbs kind of rotated backwards and his neck twisted around. And I think they may get an inspiration for this. There's a deleted scene from The Exorcist where Linda Blair comes crawling down the stairs like that, all twisted. But maybe that's where they got it from. So he's getting creepy, a good, you know, aggressive monster. And unlike the other monsters, he's very, very fast, very flat out threatening he's not slow he's like coming right at you so now we're in the big climax of the movie where he he, ramon steals the cop car and he's being chased by the jangly man and uh stella goes off to confront uh sarah at the at the apartment or the apartment at the uh, haunted house i'm at an apartment right now so uh (laughs) you're not in the haunted house right now (laughs) no i don't i don't think so no signs yet but um so (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's, we're in, like I said, the, the big action climax, I guess, where Ramon crushes the, uh, the jangling man into a car and it like falls to pieces and then reassembles itself again to come after him. So Stella's at the, the Bellows house and she kind of gets sucked into, I don't know, what do you want to call it? An alternative dimension, a memory mm-hmm. uh, where she has to live out sarah's existence she becomes sarah in the house being chased around by the family meanwhile ramon he gets chased to the house and he's being chased by the jangly man so both these things are happening at the same time in the same place but kind of like in alternative dimensions and they can hear each other so sarah manages to i think it's done pretty well it doesn't sound as good when you say it but sarah basically tells stella excuse me get their name they're similar names. So Stella confronts Sarah and tells her that the, it all has to stop, that they know the truth about her and that if she'll stop killing everybody, she will tell her story. And that sort of basically breaks the curse uh, where Sarah is like, okay, you have to write my story. Here's a pen, write it in your blood. And then she vanishes with a scream, you know, like the curse breaks with her scream. And that, of course, causes uh, Ramon to be saved from the jangling man. And that's pretty much how it ends. Like I said, I don't think explaining it captures it because it plays out pretty well. It's very emotional. But what did you think about the um, her, her, her sort of confrontation with Sarah at the end? I thought it was, uh, yeah, I thought it was well done as well. And as you say it, it also sounds like it would be corny at the same time, like her negotiating with this evil spirit that's killed her friends and like just through sheer rationality is going to break through her rage. But in the, uh, in the scene, it's done really well. It just kind of personified Sarah as a, as a little bit older than I anticipated, actually. She looks, she looks older and Stella, you know, says, like, I'll write your story, as you say, and it's creepy, but it has this kind of nice positive, like uh, she can kind of rest in peace now. Stella's going to write her story and the curse can, can move on. And uh, I thought that was a nice resolution. Yeah, I agree. It was a nice resolution. Um, having, wrapping up Sarah's story in a positive way so that her name could be cleared and that the truth could be told about her family and really being kind of um one of the things that stella does is talks to sarah and says hey think you know your family mistreated you and uh, abused you but my friends didn't and they didn't have to die and this is something that you caused and you did and you had a choice and you chose to do it and you're just kind of similar to your parents in a way and so i thought that was really great yeah it all because there's been a lot of uh, there's sort of a comparison drawn between sarah and stella throughout the movies they're both they both tell scary stories right they're both um kind of different young ladies they both have issues with their family so uh and this whole movie has been we've been learning more about uh, sarah and why she does what she does and how she was abused so it all kind of comes to this climax where she's confronted and faced with what she's become in response to what she went through right so it actually does work pretty well i think but um 
But then we have to get, we have like a, an epilogue where Stella actually does write the story and publish it, publishes it about what really happened to Sarah. Ramon goes off to Vietnam and Stella and her dad, we see Ruth again. So Ruth has apparently, oh, I didn't mention, we find out at one point that Ruth has gone insane and has been locked in a mental institution supposedly for the rest of her life. But here at the end of the movie, we see that she's back out. She's pretty scarred up, right? But she's back with, um, with Stella and her dad. And they're going off to try and use the book to find a way to get Chuck and Augie back. And that's the end of the movie. Kind of a bittersweet ending. I mean, uh, two of the characters did survive. But like I said, Chuck and Augie are still gone. And so is Tommy, for that matter. <laughs> So people actually die in this movie and don't come back. It's implied that maybe they can come back, but I don't know. Any any last thoughts about this ending or the movie as a whole? So is there a sequel in the works? I mean, are we going to find Stella and Ruthie tracking down Augie and Chuck and maybe Tommy? Maybe they leave Tommy where he is, but um, is, there any, is there a sequel <laughs> in the works? I mean, it sets it up kind of nicely. Yeah, last I heard, um, there was a sequel announced several months ago. Now, obviously, the world's been kind of crazy since then, so who knows what's happening there. And plus, just because something gets announced, you know, this happens all the time in Hollywood, where we're working on this movie, and 10 years later, maybe it'll happen or maybe it won't. But yeah, a sequel has been announced, so hopefully we will get another one. I, I would like to see another one. I would like to see um, more stories, more of the short stories adapted. I agree. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was happy to watch it again, and it's creepy and fun, and I recommend it. Yeah. Um, I thought they did a really good job. It felt mature enough that it wasn't like a kid's kind of like movie. Um, uh, I love that it was done for Guillermo del Toro, the scare, the suspense. It was done really well, and I hope they make another one, because I'd love to see more of the stories, like The Bride and the cat's paw and a whole bunch of the other stories that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I'd, I'd be up for a sequel. I'm not sure, you know, with the main character, with Sarah gone, the curse broken, how do you have the story start coming back to life again? I don't know, but I mean, yeah, it's Hollywood. They can find a way. <laughs> um, but I would like to see a sequel. I hope in the sequel, Agent Schrader gets more, more time on camera because he's a good actor. Let's see here. Oh, I'd still like to see an actual anthology. I want to see these stories adapted like as they are in just short stories, you know. But other than that, yeah, the movie was, um, it did pretty well critically. I think uh, some people criticized it for the reasons I've already said where they wanted it to be a straight adaptation and instead they got um, a new story that kind of worked them in. But I, I thought it was good and most of the critics liked it too. It was a financial success. The budget was like a little over $25 million and the movie made over $100 million at the box office. So it did well. And like we said, uh, a sequel has been announced, but we'll see what comes of that. <laughs> and the, the other thing that um, I don't know that we touched on, but it does give you a Halloween, October kind of vibe. I mean, it definitely fits in with our theme of... of uh, Halloween in October and it, it has the cornfields as you mentioned um, so I thought it, it fit in really nicely. Yeah I mean it starts off on Halloween night so part of the movie actually does take place on Halloween and yeah I think this is a good Halloween movie. I think this is a good a good scary movie for getting younger kids into scary movies you know i would if you have a little kid i wouldn't start them off with this movie this shouldn't be their first horror movie i don't think but if they've seen some of the more tame stuff maybe this is a a, a good one to show them but yeah I, I could see it being a minor halloween classic i'll probably rewatch it in october um, well, we can add it to our list again a year from now well, any last uh, any last thoughts about this movie before we introduce the next podcast, or have we said it all? We've said it all, but I would definitely recommend the books. Read them, check out the artwork. It's beautiful. I think it's great. It, it fits for, I think, all ages. They were really creepy when I was young, and now that I read them, they're still pretty creepy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you brought that up again. Definitely reread the books. Make sure you get the ones with the original artwork because that's half the fun. Uh, those are great books. Check out that documentary, uh, Scary Stories, that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. It's a good documentary. And with that, yeah, I think we can all say, Justin, would you recommend this movie too? It sounds like you would. Yep, definitely. Yep. I really enjoyed it. I've watched it three times now, which is um, more times than I have watched 95% of the movies I've ever seen. 99% of the movies, probably, actually. So, yeah. I, uh, I kind of had a hard time watching this movie because I saw it in theaters, and when it came to rewatch it, came time to rewatch it for this, it's not available to rent anywhere. You can purchase it. So um, I had to purchase a, a digital copy, which is annoying. I hate doing that. I watched it on, or I bought it for the PlayStation 4, but then apparently for region reasons, I guess, I couldn't watch it after I paid for it. Oh, um, no. But then I ended up logging into your Amazon Prime account and watching the copy you paid for. So, thanks. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, we have, between the three of us, we have given this movie probably $100 between seeing it in theaters and buying multiple copies. So, we did our part to support this film. <laughs> Cheers to that, yeah, but uh, yeah, support this movie. You know, support when Hollywood does something cool. Vote with your wallet and show that you approve. But with that, we should move on to our next next podcast topic. We're actually not going to be doing a movie uh, for the first time next week. Instead, we're just going to be talking about um, Halloween, the holiday as a whole, and sort of our memories of it and uh, what we think about it, how we celebrate it. And, so, and we're going to force Jared into lists. Yeah, well, but we're going to have to talk about some top five lists of Halloween activities because Mia's stoked about top, top five lists as am I. So, yeah, me and Justin will have lists, uh, top whatever. Jared will have some things. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I hate the list. I, I, you can probably get me to list like five things I like, but putting them in order is way too stressful for me. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have to be one to five, just to, you know, top five. I'll take that as a compromise for sure. Yeah. All right. So yeah, we, we're working on a variety of topics to discuss, but I want to talk about, you know, Halloween memories when you were a kid and how you celebrate Halloween now and just talk about horror movies in general because we've been very focused on specific movies so maybe we can talk about you know uh ones we like ones we haven't covered yet but yeah just something a little less formal a little less structured it should be a good time so, so. can i say that I'm, I'm excited to share with the audience uh our decorations me and i now that we have a, a house rather than a winnebago that we live in have given real thought to how we wanted to decorate our house, the things we wanted to have up. It's a small start, but as we go to share it with you in the audience next week, I think you'll be proud of us. Um, and uh, also, uh, we also need to work in a tad bit of conversation about the actual, you know, horrors that the end of the month are bringing us. Um, so I might, as part of my Halloween horrors, point to that we have horrors coming in November. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have officially banned that conversation topic. If uh, it's horrifying <laughs> to me, it's part of the art discussion. Yeah. <laughs> we we use uh <laughs> yeah we use fictional horror to escape real life horror. So, um, but all right, with that, if nothing else is left to say, we'll say uh, goodbye and see you next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. See you next week. Bye, Thanks everybody.